Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I know that some of you are human too. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I just cannot believe any of this voodoo bullshit. <laughs> Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of... Structuration theory. I'm so glad I didn't have to say that. <laughs> and innovation diffusion. Today, we'll be talking about The Thing, which is available for rental at Amazon Prime and a few other streaming services. Dan and I like to watch Amazon Prime because it has trivia. It does. And I have to say, some of that trivia is quite informational. That's right. Quite, it's very, it's so, very, it's not trivial, I would say. Yes, it's, yes, it's actually, or, or it is, I feel like I'm a better person because I learned it. That's the way I Yes. <laughs> In the next few weeks, we'll be talking about The Gone World and Alien vs. Predator, and we are thinking of extending cold sci-fi winter. Dan, it's cold sci-fi winter. <laughs> so we are taking some suggestions. We have mentioned before that we're considering doing Groundhog Day, and I think we should just probably dive into saying we're doing Groundhog Day, Dan. I think we're going to do Groundhog Day. Um, <laughs> Dan, I'm just going to say that repeatedly at various times uh, randomly during you, the rest of this episode. Dan, I think we're going to do Groundhog Day. Okay, if you haven't yet considered becoming a patron, please do. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash space the nation. A great way to support us that doesn't involve money, really. It's just social capital. Yeah. Rate and review the show or tell your friends and neighbors. And you can reach us on various forms of social media. It used to be that you could reach us on Twitter. I am still on Twitter, but Anna is not. We are both on Mastodon at various arcane addresses, but I'm sure if you go to Mastodon and search us, you would find us. I am also on Post. We are also doing other things. Anna is also on Instagram, but but Anna, I think you have your own website as well, and you're doing some I have a stuff. website where you can stay up to date with what I'm up to, Dan. <laughs> I feel like I've, I've finally just become a content creator. Like I've, I've fully matured into the apex predator of social media. You're, are you saying you're the Adorno thing? <laughs> I'm the Adorno thing. Yes. I have a website. It's AnnaMarieCox.com. I teach a writing workshop quarterly now, which if you're interested, you can take it. You might see some friendly faces there. Have had a couple of crossovers from the Discord into my writing workshop. If you're interested in a live version and you live in Miami or will be in Miami, on February 18th, there is a pop-up version of it happening at a pop-up non-alcoholic bar, which mm -hmm. is a thing and some words I never thought I'd put together in that order. But I but do love me a good mocktail. I mean, I'm looking forward. I, I, like I think we should stop calling them mocktails. I think they're just Fair cocktails enough. that don't have any alcohol in them. Mm -hmm. How about that? Yeah. How about that, Dan? Okay. Dan, I understand you have another place that, that people can... <laughs> can read you, can understand what you're going through, maybe? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have a substack. It is called Dresner's World. And, you know, it, it's basically what I was doing at the Post and before that foreign policy, except even more unedited, which, you know, so I apologize. It's the devolution of Dan. <laughs> exactly. Well, in some ways, it's a return to, to it's a return to Dresner 1.0 because it's back to when I was originally blogging in some ways, except slightly nicer graphics. And you persist in thinking that the Substack economy will not implode, which more power to yeah. you. Yeah, I'm, I'm I mean, hopeful for that. We'll see. I hope that yes. happens. I, Good let's for you. Put it this way: it has it hasn't imploded for me yet, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> That's the way capitalism works. It hasn't imploded yes. for me yet. <laughs> That's very good, my Dan. bumper sticker. Very yes. good, <laughs> Dan. So, besides being able to make a living, how are you? Yeah, um, Anna, I'm not going to lie. I'm in mourning. Oh. So it's been a, a hard couple of months. I haven't talked about it on the podcast, but my mother-in-law passed away 
earlier this month after a battle with leukemia. And, you know, I it's not fun. There's no other way to put it. But I have to say this week was lovely because there was a nice celebration of life ceremony for her. And it was fitting because she, knowing what was coming, planned almost all of it, which meant there was enough food to, I believe, feed the entire state of North Carolina. It was a truly impressive spread. And it was a truly lovely turnout of people from various parts for life. So it really, like celebration of life ceremony can unfortunately sound incredibly cheesy, but it really was in some ways a celebration of life. And so I will miss her greatly. She listened to this podcast and, you know, was subscribed to my Substack. She really, she was one of my my biggest fans. And it was, you know, I, I will always be grateful to her for that, as well as allowing me to take care of her daughter. But I'm in mourning, but I'm, I'm slowly healing. How are you, Anna? I'm okay. I am a little surprised you shared that with us, but I'm glad you did. Mm-hmm. In part, because I think it's important to recognize that mourning can happen alongside a lot of other things. Mm-hmm you know. And so I wish you well. And as you know, I've kept you in my thoughts and prayers. Thank you, Anna. And I'm doing all right. You're also in a form of mourning, aren't you? Uh, (laughs) Yes. Sorry. My beloved Horned Frogs played one of the worst games that's ever been played in a national college football championship. Historically, a bad game. Historically, large score for the opposing team. I haven't talked about it much. I guess I'm still in <laughs> denial. <laughs> I think the important thing about the Horned Frogs was the journey because it was a hell okay. of a journey. This is the thing. People say that and it's a cliche, but I think it is absolutely true here. Yeah. The mm-hmm. only thing that, that kind of kept me from, I can't believe how much I cared about this. Yeah. But the only thing that kept me from being really like distraught about it was uh-huh. recognizing that that team is a really strong team, that that coach is a very positive community building coach. Mm-hmm. And I liked thinking about the idea that they're going to, they did fly home to Fort Worth to an enormous gathering of fans. Oh, that's nice. You know, who of oh, course good. did not give a shit that they lost. Right. I mean, they gave yeah, a shit, but yeah. did not care, did not, you know, <laughs> still love the team. Also, given what the expectations were of TCU before the start of the season, they really exceeded those. They did. And they ended in the AP poll at number two. And so. Oh, good for them. And, you know, success builds upon success in most areas. And they're going to have better recruiting classes. And they might just. I I was joking for a long time that they probably wouldn't repeat this for a while because of the inequities of college football and this being a fluke year. But who knows? Who knows? We'll see. And I also will add one last thing, which is that, so in my gratitude journal, (laughs) one Mm -hmm. of the things I kind of think about every night is what inspires me. Mm -hmm. And I have put down TCU quarterback Max Duggan multiple times. (laughs) That's a good answer. Not Um, only is he a fellow redhead, but he is a four-year player, not a four-year starter, and in fact started this season on the bench. Wow. I didn't know that part. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And has become an incredible leader and has improved over those four years. I've watched him improve. And I think I want to be someone that can have the humility to stick with a team Mm -hmm. and lead where I can and do what I can and just do the best of my abilities. And sometimes that means you're the best. So anyway, Max Duggan. Woohoo! Yes. 
Redheads. So, we should talk are, about the movie. <laughs> yes, we should. Let's get to the thing. Why are we doing this? Well, you know, John Carpenter kind of screams cold sci-fi winter on. I mean, the thing was one of the films I think we naturally thought about with this. Yes, we did. I think it was the first film we thought about, and I yeah. couldn't wait to get to it. In fact, there were times I wrote this past holiday season I really wanted to watch it, and I held back, Dan. I Good held myself this. back. So I watched it last night for probably the fourth or fifth time. Oh, interesting. I've never, this was the first time I saw this film from beginning to end. I re can recall seeing bits of the, for lack of a word of putting it, the gross out scenes when I was a teenager in the 80s. And, you know, we've talked before about how like body dis body dysmorphia is kind of like a thing that normally freaks me out. And this sufficiently freaked me out. I was like, no, I have no interest in watching this. But I'm a more mature adult now, Anna. And so it was, it was a more enjoyable experience for me this time. Yes, body horror is a real sensitive thing for me, too. Yeah. And I remember being very disturbed by this. Watching it last night, I wasn't as disturbed. It was variable for me, and we'll talk about this a little bit yeah. later. I mean, it's it, yeah. it's the, the effects are, some of the effects are still amazing. Some of them I don't think have aged quite as well. Yeah, um, I think the, the put ones that have aged well, like, we'll, we'll talk about the, con I think the context matters for some of them that have, yeah. aged, that have aged yeah. well. And we need to let the listeners know, Dan, if they yes. need to watch this before they finish listening to this podcast. If they've made it this far, like, I assume they've made their decision. But <laughs> but what is our advice on the two levels that this question exists at? So first of all, should you watch it? Absolutely. This is a really good film. I, I think I'm not quite as high on it as Anna, and we will get to the reasons why a little bit later. But it is undeniably like a, a, a classic horror suspense film in a variety of ways. There are a couple of jump scares that we're going to talk about. And so, like, if you want to go into this film cold, I strongly recommend watching it and then coming to listen. But that said, some of the spoilers we're going to reveal, I don't think really change anything all that much. So you don't absolutely have to have watched it, I think, in order to listen to this podcast. What say you, Anna? Yeah, here, here. I, I think yeah. you could listen to this podcast, no problem. The jump scares aren't what make it a good movie. No, although some of the jump scares are really good. Yes, um, true. And one in particular, yes. All right, let's get to how cold is it? For cold sci-fi winter, it's worth delving into just how cold it is in this setting. How cold was it, Anna? There are two answers to this question. There's the real-life answer and then how cold <laughs> it would be in Antarctica. The right. real-life answer is that it was not very cold, although they did work on refrigerated sets, which I think mm -hmm. is interesting. But they revealed it to because they wanted to have the breath show. I, I right. part of me is like, which is oh, the right way of doing it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, of course you'd want to do that. And I guess there's been different ways that Hollywood's tried to do that. But it turns out actually the most efficient way, probably not in terms of global warming, but the most efficient way to do that <laughs> is refrigerate your entire set. Yeah. And the way you get the mist of uh, breath to appear is actually uh, shooting, like making it a very like humid environment. So it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be that cold. Apparently, I don't know exactly how cold, but not that cold. Right. However, April in Antarctica, it would be uh, between negative 12 and zero degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. But Dan, have you out. been to Antarctica? <laughs> 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 Dan, what about you? Do you? Can you tell us how cold it is? I want a little credit that it took me this long to bring up the fact that I've been to Antarctica. Uh, <laughs> yes, I did go to Antarctica in 2015, which was an amazing experience. But the only... My only quibble is that if memory serves in the film, they say it's just the beginning of winter, which would mean that it's not Antarctica in April. It would be Antarctica in June. Oh, I guess I was thinking like, I guess I looked up like, f you're right. I guess I looked up fall. 
like right. that's fall. Not so, so June so it'd be colder than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Winter. It would be, and I think they mention it various times. It's like minus forty four or whatever. You know, it's it's pretty cold. I think would be the way to put it. Minus forty, I think, is the way to go because what I don't know if you know this. Minus forty is the temperature at which it doesn't matter whether you say Celsius or Fahrenheit. They're the same thing. Very that's good. A nifty game. piece of math. Anna's impressed by this, listeners. She's not saying it, but you should see her <laughs> face right now. She's totally <laughs> impressed. <laughs> But let's move on to the story behind the story. Anna, tell us how the thing landed in our midst. So, as usual, I have more to say about the story behind the story than we probably really have time for or that people <laughs> want to hear. There is a documentary about the movie called The Thing Horror Takes Shape. I presume made in the 90s. It is clearly made by fans. It's not got the best production values. <laughs> it is really interesting. They got some good cast interviews, especially with Richard Masur. Is that how you say his name? Masur? Masur? Yeah, I believe Masur. that's his name. He, yeah. used to, he went on to become president of the Screen Actors Guild of Memory Source. Oh, yes, that is true. Yeah, go labor. Yeah. It is also really focused on special effects. Like, there mm -hmm. is a lot about the special effects in the movie. That is probably what the people making the movie were really interested in. A lot of other good tidbits, too. So if you are curious about everything you pretty much can know about the thing, then that movie is for you. So it is the earliest Carpenter film we've done. We did do They Live oh. and then yeah. made an abortive attempt <laughs> to do Big Trouble in Little China, which I just refused yeah. to talk about. <laughs> yeah, Ada had issues with the film and I, I, I can understand why. It was made for a budget of 15 million, made 19 million. That was not considered a success. Probably the main reason that Carpenter was brought on, this is being his first major studio film, is that they thought he would do it really cheaply. To review, Halloween was made for $300,000 and made $70 million. <laughs> Good for Carpenter. And he, and he went on to make, when he went on to do, you know, his own privately financed stuff, indie finance stuff, he went back to kind of pretty low budget and got good returns. They Live was $3 million to make $13 million, uh, in mm -hmm. box office. It was released to almost uniformly negative reviews. <laughs> Instant junk, wretched excess, <laughs> some of the reviews. And I will mention a little later, but just say now that this pretty much permanently scarred Carpenter. Like, he stayed out really? of major studios for a long time after this and didn't do interviews oh, that's interesting. about oh, wow. the movie either. Huh. It is a fascinating production. However, it's the, I think the only Carpenter film to not be completely scored by him. <laughs> it is, it also includes music from Ennio Morricone, who is a very famous conductor, like Academy Award winning, Grammy Award winning, most famous yeah. for spaghetti westerns, but a very well-known composer who Carpenter sought out himself and asked personally to do the score. Morricone said no at first, and then Carpenter said, but I got married to your music. Please. Oh, wow, that's a good line. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing about the score, though, I have to admit, I, I knew about that fact, but there is almost like this, it feels like a John Carpenter score. It's like Morricone doing, okay, I'll do this the way John Carpenter would. That is basically what he did. He basically did a John Carpenter score, and what Carpenter said Again, more detail than people need. He he recorded 20 minutes of music and said, here, it, it's not really a score so much as a favor. The movie's <laughs> very well known for its special effects. It was the second mm -hmm. movie by Richard Botten, 
who was 21 years old when he did it. Incredible success in terms of his reputation in the special effects world. One of the pieces of trivia in the Amazon Prime version of this is that he basically worked himself into the hospital doing yeah. the special effects for this movie. He worked seven days a week, 24 hours a day, slept on set, wound up catching double pneumonia and was yeah. hospitalized. And Stan Winston, among others, came in to finish the work. Stan Winston refused to take credit. He's not listed in the credits because he That's felt like he, he was just continuing Botten's work. Yeah. Yeah. Botten is one of the major talking heads in the documentary. His excitement about his work is somewhat endearing and somewhat disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if you ever see the special effects of the film. Yeah, Fair yeah. Enough. I think relevant to our discussion, perhaps, is that John Carpenter got everyone together and they went to a glacier together and basically oh, wow. lived on the set to develop. But not in Antarctica, right? Not in Antarctica, not... right. In, right. In British okay. Columbia and, and Alaska, two different places. But it apparently was gorgeous. Everyone says mm. it was beautiful. And Dan, I guess maybe you can tell us if glaciers are pretty. Are they pretty, Dan? They are really pretty, actually, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they can be. Yes. And they, you know, <laughs> got to know each other and also developed a ton of backstories for various characters, which maybe huh. we'll talk about those. Yeah. You can probably guess some of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to go through some alternate casting. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Palmer. Yeah. That was played by David Clennon, I think. Right. They brought in Jay Leno and Gary Shandling to read for it. So. <laughs> Could have been a different movie. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh-huh. then for Childs, it's uh-huh. kind of a murderer's row of African-American character actors. Carl Weathers, Isaac Hayes, and Ernie Hudson all read for it. Uh, Keith oh, David's okay. first major role in a film. He had been a stage actor primarily. Huh. So this was his big transition. And he became sort of a carpenter, yes. you know. Right. Member of the Carpenter Repertory Theater, yeah. as it were. Yeah. Nalls was going to be played by Franklin Ijay, who is a comedian, black comedian, fairly mm-hmm. popular in the 70s and 80s. He came into Red, but instead gave a lengthy speech about the character being a stereotype. So did not get the role. Oh, dear. And uh, McReady, again, a kind of murderer's row. Ready for the McReady casting? Yes, list? I am. Okay. Brian Dennehy. Uh-huh. Chris Christopherson. John Hurd, Ed Harris, Tom Berenger, Scott Glenn, Fred Ward, Peter Coyote, Sam Shepard, Christopher Walken, Jeff Bridges, and Nick Nolte. <laughs> Good God. Any one of I, them would have been great. That's the thing. I, I, yeah, different. It would have like, been very different. Like a few of like yeah. Christopher Walken in that role. Oh, that's what no, that was the that was the name that I stuck with. It was like, it would be amazing to watch a Christopher Walken version of the thing. Yeah. So anyway, came together. Apparently a great set to be on. People have fond memories mm-hmm. of it. You can tell in a documentary there's reminiscing is, is great, which we have discovered often leads to a good movie when, when we've mm-hmm. talked about movies like that. However, the quote unquote failure of the movie, as I said, really hit Carpenter hard. Huh. And he was, I don't think he was blackballed from major studios. I think he very much just decided, I guess I can't do this. Or huh. I guess I don't want and he to did, do this. And I'm curious, he never really changed. I mean, because The Thing obviously is one of those films that sort of has grown in stature over time. He didn't like, he didn't get over it as, as time went on? Well, he never, he didn't give interviews about it for a few years. <laughs> and then this is the quote, the first interview he gave where he mentioned it. I was called a pornographer of violence. I had no idea it would be received that way. 
the thing was just too strong for that time. I knew it was going to be strong. I didn't think it would be that strong. So fascinating. He just backed huh. off and made some other really great films. But we're going to talk about this one. Yes. Very quickly, we should do Chekhov's What's It? This is the thing that appears in the act one of the film that might wind up playing an important role later on. Anna, my Chekhov's What's It? is Chekhov's Jim Bean, which is the bottle of scotch that, that you see McCready sort of drinking and, you know, using to engage in minor misogyny in the very early parts of the film <laughs> that also appears Using to at engage, the very end. It exacerbates the misogyny Exa that was already there. That's fair. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we're gonna we're Woody's, gonna get into Woody. that. Although, well, I was gonna I was gonna try and see if this movie, like, what what kind of Bechdel test you could apply to this movie. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know. Like, it, it's yeah. Well, well he has they're... a conversation with a female that does that's not about another male. That's something, right? Is it ha <laughs> right? But it has to be two female characters. It has to be so two females, is... and one of them can't be a computer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Although, fun fact: this is a fun trivia fact. The computer voice was Adrian Barbeau who was John Carpenter's wife. Yes, and a collaborator of his for many years. Yeah. Yes. So I came up, I think, with a really good Chekhov's What's It, which is Chekhov's <laughs> helicopter parts. Oh, okay. Yeah, because they kind of, they're there, and then they discover them, which in a scene yep. that I had kind of forgotten, <laughs> which also kind of, it's a, one of the more bizarre kind of turning points of the movie, I think. Yeah, yeah. So. Speaking of which, let's let's get to the plot. Let's, let's get into it. All right, let's start with Act 1, shoot first and ask questions later. Welcome to U.S. Outpost 31, a research base in Antarctica where the men are men, the women are non-existent, and the dogs are not what they seem. A Norwegian helicopter actively pursues a sled dog to the station. The Norwegians are not great at dog hunting, as one of them accidentally blows up their helicopter and its pilot, and then accidentally shoots Bennings while aiming at the dog. Station Commander Gary displays a quick trigger finger by shooting the Norwegian dead. American pilot McCready and Dr. Copper decide to investigate the Norwegian base while the rest of the Americans befriend the dog. Back at that base are the others, Dr. Blair, Hothead Childs, Dog Lover Clark, Radio Man Windows, and the rest, Knolls, Palmer, Norris, Bennings, and Fuchs. The Norwegian base turns out to have been trashed pretty badly, with a lot of blood and some really weird-looking corpses. They bring one of those corpses back, and Blair's autopsy reveals a normal set of human organs. Clark kennels the sled dog, and hey, what do you know? He's not really a sled dog. It starts to mutate and absorbs a few of the other dogs. The ruckus alerts the humans, and Childs has to use a flamethrower to incinerate the thing. All right, time out. Because dogs suffered in the film... I must intervene at this point, and to paraphrase Michael Jackson, I must ask, Anna, are you okay? Are you okay, Anna? <laughs> Decided to say so true that you had to mispronounce my name. Great. I'm um, sorry. Wait, do you want me to do that again? No, it's okay. It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. okay. Uh, Dan, I was actually asking myself this question. <laughs> believe it or not. Because I was like, wait, I'm okay with this. I'm here watching this in bed with my dog next to me. How am I okay with this? <laughs> Yes. Part of me was like, oh, it must be because Exley's here with me, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. then I realized it's the performance of Jed. Jed the, the dog. dog. Jed the who, wolf dog. The wolf dog, who is legit amazing in this film. Like, he doesn't have a lot of, of scenes, you know, because he, he's gone after the first act. But, like, there is one scene in particular in this film where he's walking down a hallway 
where it is honestly one of the most amazing shots I've ever seen because I don't know even how they did it, but like the the dog, which is clearly a thing, is like looking, trying to absorb people. And he goes and looks in various like entryways, never looks at the camera. And, you know, it, it's like radiates a sense of menace throughout the entire scene. It's an incredibly well done scene. And that dog is fucking amazing. In it. He he is. He has his own Wikipedia entry. He was in oh, other nice. films, including White Fang, okay. where he played the lead role. He played White ah, Fang. Okay. All right. He has kind of a fascinating backstory. He was adopted initially by Gary Winkler, who's Henry Winkler's cousin. <laughs> okay, sure. And then adopted by Clint Rowe, who was a dog trainer or animal trainer. Mm-hmm. And he was brought in and he made really good friends with Richard Masur. And Aww. in the documentary, I actually sent Dan the clip from the documentary. And I don't know quite how to communicate what's in it because it's such a... You know what, Anna? Let's let let Richard Masur actually express it directly. Here we go. And Jed and I got to be good friends. He was a very spooky dog when we started uh, because he was half wolf and half dog, and and the wolf half was real dominant in him. He he did everything like a wolf. He would never bark. He never growled. But the minute he would become uncomfortable, he would just so, suddenly go. And you just went, uh oh, wait a minute. And he did that with me sometimes. And you know, Clint had warned me, if you see, you see this look on his face, just relax, try and relax. <laughs> you know, he something spooked him in. So obviously, our 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 listeners can't see the expression <laughs> Sir makes when he's imitating Jed. <laughs> but I just want to use that sentence again. He's imitating Jed. <laughs> <laughs> which means for him and for us like jed had a was acting like he was acting yeah yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he he had a look to him that was very effective and i could go on and on and on really about jed i will simply say look at the wikipedia page fascinating character watch the movie mm-hmm. and then also think back to our other favorite dog actor actor yes our dog dog actor animal actor our other favorite yep. animal actor space the nation which is coco who played sorry in prey on prey yeah very different dog great performance mm-hmm. but really more naturalistic like yes not so method i would say as jed perhaps i mean really there's different styles of dog acting i think that there, there's a good debate to be had right well so apparently she was very disruptive on set but they basically captured her natural exuberance that was the thing on, <laughs> on prey on yes prey. whereas whereas jed it's just like it's it's a mature commanding performance and you're you're really in awe yeah lifetime oscar award for jed who by the way lived to be 17 which is damn very long. old for a dog but apparently yeah. and of course i looked this up not that old for a wolf uh Wolves yep. live longer than dogs. So good just for, to bring it all back to answer the question, I think I was so transported by Jed's performance, mm-hmm. I knew he was not a real dog. I knew that this was actually a frightful alien. A, a dog thing. A dog a thing. Alien. And so yes. the violence done to it did not bother me because I was like, this is not actually a dog. This Fair. is an alien. Anyway... Moving on with the plot, speaking of disgusting things being done to the dog, Blair autopsies the dog thing and in between making noises of revulsion, concludes that this thing is an organism that attacks other life forms and imitates them perfectly. Anna, I I have to say, watching particularly the first part of this film, the unfortunate comparison I kept making was with Alien. 
because there is a sort of structural similarity to the plots, right? There are people in a sort of isolated space and suddenly an alien, you know, makes their way and, and sort of it invades their, their little territory. And I think the problem as a result is that I, this film suffers by comparison. I don't think it's nearly as good as Alien, and I kept noticing that. So, for example, to be honest, it was never entirely clear what a lot of people on this base were supposed to be doing. We knew some of them, obviously. There was the pilot, there was the station commander, and the doctor, and so forth. But a lot of these other people, I had no idea what they were supposed to be doing. And the purpose of the base itself was never really, you know, explained. And a few other problems I had with the opening, you know, like, the Norwegian who doesn't just speak English and tell everyone what the hell is going on, that kind of bothered me. I mean, you know, any Norwegian is going to be more fluent in English than 90% of Americans. And, you know, also Gary shooting very quickly at this Norwegian and breaking the window to do it. Like, you're not going to break the window in a base just as winter is about to start. And so, like, it was one of these things where, like, I kept the reverent, like, the I, I kept noticing those things. So, sorry, what say you? It is not as good a movie. It is yeah. interesting that it is so similar, and it is also interesting. I actually didn't think of it really as like a metaphor for labor, whereas for Alien, it's like so clear that that's right. yeah, it absolutely what's is. happening. And it's a similar setup here, right? But it just doesn't. It, this movie has just so such a different interest. Yeah, you know, Carpenter I mean, is not it, interested in that. He he's interested yeah. in a thing, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, he's interested <laughs> in that. Thing. And, and part of it is. <laughs> Part of it is that it's set up so that, like, in, in contrast, in Alien, and I guess part of it, again, it also is the opening. Like, the first 10 minutes of Alien, you find out absolutely everything you need to know about all of those characters. And it's real. And there's fewer characters, I admit, but it's an amazing setup. And again, may, maybe it's unfair that I'm comparing this. And their jobs about, are important. That's another thing. Right, in Alien. exactly. Whereas right. in this film, you don't know why they're there. You don't know what they're doing exactly. It's, it. you know, it, it's just... Again, it gets good. There, there are going to be parts that are really amazing for this film, but it, like, it's a weak opening, and I, I was, it was just struck by it. I had the same thought about Gary breaking the window, by the way. Yeah. And then I had a thought, because it's been a few years since I've seen it, many years since I've last time I saw it. I was like, wait a minute. Is Gary maybe going to try and save the alien? I had the, like, the alien plot. I was like thinking maybe, oh, maybe he's shooting the Norwegian because he knows it's important to keep the alien alive. Like they would in, but no, yeah, that's, yeah, that's but, not but, it. That no, would be interesting, but that's that would not be. It. <laughs> but that, that would that would be like a deep conspiracy plot, and that would have been interesting. But that's not what's going. on. Also, All I right. want to say they they are not curious enough about why the Norwegians want that dog dead. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Like you know, you like <laughs> literally like two Norwegians kill themselves because they're incompetent, but like they're clearly trying to kill this dog, and it does raise the obvious question. We're just letting the maybe dog wander around. I mean, I love dogs, yeah. but maybe just not let it hang out. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So all of that, that was it was again, it's this is there are parts of this film that are amazing, but the, the opening bit is not does not really work. All right, let's get to act two. Welcome to the wild, wild south. Watching a video recovered from the Norwegian base, our protagonists learn that the Norwegians were excavating a site. They head to the site coordinates and discover a partially buried alien spacecraft, which Norris estimates has been buried for over a hundred thousand years. At the same time, Blair learns from an awfully specific <laughs> computer <laughs> that that this thing could successfully imitate humans. Indeed, there's a screen where it says entire, I'm, I'm going to read this, quote, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact, Donna. And naturally, what does Blair do? He gets his gun and starts to act pretty squirrely. I'm sorry, did you laugh at the computer scene oh, as well? It was just... Of course. It, just, it, it is yeah. a highly specific program, uh, <laughs> apparently. That for some yes. reason they already had on hand. 
Right. That's a really excellent program there. You know, well done. It did make Um, me think, I wonder if they're concerned about global warming. Like, why would you have like the, you know, apocalypse program on your computer? (laughs) Like at the, you know, Antarctic station. I don't know. That's possible. Fuchs is starting to be concerned about Blair's behavior. As he's expressing his concern to McCready, Bennings is attacked in the morgue. Everyone sees the thing as almost Bennings, except for some hands and a personality. They burn him and all the rest of the corpses. Blair goes missing, and McCready sees him sabotage the chopper. McCready goes after him, but Blair takes his gun to the radio room and smashes it up. He also sabotaged all the vehicles and killed all the remaining sled dogs. They put him in the tool shed to cool him off. Anna, after watching this film, I think that all late 20th century sci-fi films could be made better by having had 10 minutes of Wilford Brimley on screen. And I'm including Alien in that list. But, like, he's, I, I, there's just some energy he exudes in this film that I don't know how to describe. I'm, and I'm hoping you can actually put words to I it. I do love the autopsy scene. Yeah. Like, that is, <laughs> that is a great piece of acting yeah. and an amazing scene. I think that's one of the scenes that holds up, by the way, in terms yeah, it of does. Like, and like, the grossness it, I, of the special effects. Still pretty gross, still pretty weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his reactions to it, I felt like, yeah, this is how a doctor would do this. Like, right. he's both incredibly professional about it, but also like, huh, uh, you know, like, yeah. yeah, this is, like, mm, this is weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, the noises he makes, like, like, Wilford Brimley's body, like, it's like he cannot contain the mystery that he is dealing with. Yeah, and it's, it's, just, it's like, it's, he's, he's fascinated by it more than grossed mm-hmm. out by it. I, I, yeah. I want to point out, he was 48 at the time that he made this movie. Now. Holy crap. <laughs> he does not look 48, Anna, or at least he does not look like 48 as, you know. No, no, he does not. Yeah. I want to say, I wrote down in my notes, uh-huh. as he was smashing up the stuff, Team Blair. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He has a point. Like, at this point... No, you know, he has a really good point. Yeah, he has fact. a, like, a Blair, really good point that he should not let yeah. anyone leave. That, like... Right. <laughs> and, and also, he's he's probably corrected that if he had tried to rationally explain this to everyone, A, a thing might have, like, obviously tried to kill him, but more importantly, even if they were all human, I'm not sure they would have gone along with it. Exactly. Like, they needed to be... Yeah. It needed to be proven to them, which is unfortunate. But he yeah. was correct. Although, and it's interesting, I guess he wasn't infected at that point. Right, he can't have been infected then. I'm assuming he was infected while he was in the tool shed. Yeah. Um, or at, at right, some spoiler point, at alert. Some, yeah. Wilford yes. Brimley gets infected. Right, which leads us to Act Three. Very superstitious. The survivors realize that they need to figure out if there are any alien things left. Doctor Copper suggests a blood test, but someone sabotages the whole blood stores. At this point, I think it's safe to say, Anna, that everyone starts to freak out a bit. McCready usurps Gary, who acknowledges that he's the only one who has the key to the blood locker and therefore a natural suspect. McCready, Windows, and Nulls find Fuchs's burnt corpse and conclude that he committed suicide to avoid further assimilation. Windows returns to the main base. McCready and Nulls investigate McCready's shack because someone left the light on. Knowles then abandons McCready in the snowstorm after finding a torn shirt of McCready's and thinking he's therefore become a McCready thing. Knowles warns everyone else in the main base, but McCready breaks in because he has the keys and holds the group at bay with dynamite and a flamethrower. And I kept worrying it's about awesome. whether or not... It is an amazing like, scene. <laughs> it really is. Like, I don't know about you, I kept thinking... 
don't hold the dynamite too close to the flamethrower. That would be bad. But it, it's I, an, it this, is an amazing scene. Like, he seems genuinely yeah. crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and cold. Like, I, I mean, the makeup yeah. shows, like, McCready is supposed to have been out, like, you know, exposed in the Antarctic for a little while. And he really does look yeah. like almost like a popsicle at that point. During the excitement, Norris gets knocked out and stops breathing. As Copper attempts to defilibrate Norris, his chest transforms into a large mouth and chomps off Copper's arms. McCready incinerates the Norris thing, but its head detaches, develops spider legs, tries to flee before also being burnt. <laughs> this is some of the best effects in the movie, I think. I, I, I mean, you can tell it's effects, but at the same time, they're incredibly original. And how hard is it to come up with original special effects for a creature movie, right? Like, yeah, I think yeah. this is where we're seeing Botten's like genius, which he's now recognized as being a special effects genius. And that spider head, it looks a little silly, but the mind that comes up with that. Yeah, no, the, the spider head, I actually think is the best single like effect because it was, it's not, I wasn't expecting it. Like, you know, like, or I wasn't expecting admittedly the, the chest that turned into a giant mouth, but like, how do I put it? Like some of the effects look a little bit, have you ever seen Peter Jackson's Dead Alive? Yeah. It, they look a little like that, which meant in some ways it's, it was a little funny, but that spider thing I was not expecting. And that like, that's from like, it's almost like Lovecraftian is the way I would put it. It's like some sort of deep, disturbing shit, and I was not expecting it. Yeah, there's some ways in which the special effects in this movie, like, it, it's, we were talking about the context is important. Like, some of them yeah. don't look as good as they might have looked back then because we're used to seeing better stuff, but they're right. so original, and they're right, so exactly. good in the moment that yeah. they kind of transcend their, their hokiness. Right, in the context you're looking. And also, I actually think some of the best effects are not so much the transformation stuff, but, like, just the, like, corpse that they had that they discover in the Norwegian site, for example, that's an amazing, like, it, the corpse doesn't move, well, it does sort of move at the very end, but, like, it, it doesn't move for most of it. It's just, like, clearly a, a, a figurine, it but it, but it works. It works incredibly well, and in some ways, that's, you know, the, that's what works in this particularly, this next scene, which is pretty goddamn amazing. McCready's hunch is that this proves that every part of the thing is an individual life form with its own survival instinct. So he ties everyone else up and draws blood from them, putting a heated wire in each sample to see how the blood reacts. Clark starts to go after McCready with a scalpel, and Mac kills him. Everyone passes the test except Palmer, whose blood recoils from the heat in a truly great jump scare. I literally jumped on. I was not expecting that. At which point, Palmer Thing starts to transform and infects Windows, forcing McCready to incinerate them both after finally getting the goddamn flamethrower to work. Imagine uh, Jay Leno was... in that role. That's all I want to yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny to watch Jay Leno transform. I will say also, there is a tiny shot of Palmer right before the, he tests his blood. And, and Clennon has this little like half smile on his face, which is... Just really good if you if you watch it again. Watch that scene multiple times. And this was by far my favorite section of the movie. This is when the movie really does is like clicking on all cylinders because it's not just the horror, it's the paranoia. And that's the thing that really, like, I think Carpenter excels at. There's even a shot where you see Clark grabbing the scalpel. And it's not the most important thing going on in the shot, but, like, you can see him doing it as McCready is talking, and it just sets up the suspense perfectly, and it's really incredibly well done. And it's a little bit of misdirection about Clark, yeah, but exactly. I think Masur has set it up really well 
that yeah. you understand he's a loner, a loner among loners. You know, he's mm-hmm. probably really pissed about the dogs getting killed. He's clearly, and, which like, makes sense. Yeah, you know, yeah. attached to the dogs, and and it's easy to believe that he would be that mad to mm-hmm. to and also kind of interpret things a different way than other people. To it turns out not be <laughs> infected, yeah. but still like want to want to do some violence. Yes. Also. This then leads up to what is, I think, the greatest line reading in the entire film. Donald Moffat, who plays Gary, um, once it's revealed that he's not a thing at that point, um, after they've managed to incinerate Palmer and and uh, the Palmer thing and, and Windows, it, it's just a great line. You know what? I was going to ask you to read it for us, but I think as long as we're inserting lines from the film, Dan, here it is. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot and when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. Yeah, I can't. I, I'm glad you actually we we actually did it to the original because like I can't quite do that justice. It is it is historic. Yes. All right. Let's get on to Act Four: The Happy Ending. <laughs> Mac leaves Childs to guard the base while the others go to the tool shed to test Blair. Except Blair ain't there. Ruh roh. Turns out Blair Thing tunneled under and was trying to build a spacecraft out of spare parts. They torch the spacecraft, but as they're doing that, the base power generator is destroyed, presumably by Blair Thing. McCready guesses that with escape no longer possible, the Thing intends to hibernate again until a rescue team arrives. McCready, Gary, and Knowles agree that the Thing cannot be allowed to escape and set explosives to destroy the station. In doing so, however, Blair Thing kills Gary and Knowles just sort of disappears. Blair Thing transforms into a big-ass creature and breaks the detonator, but McCready triggers the explosives with a stick of dynamite, successfully killing the Thing and also successfully destroying the station. As McCready stumbles around the burning wreckage, Childs returns with the flamethrower, explaining that he got lost in the storm looking for Blair. Exhausted and not entirely sure if the other guy is a thing, Childs and McCready share a bottle of whiskey and watch the fire burn out. Anna, two questions. First, do you think that Childs was a thing in that final shot? Because I assume we know McCready isn't. And second, did the things know that they were things? In other words, like, you know, there are times where we see Norris and Palmer when they must have been things actually talking and acting like they're their people. Do you think those things knew what they were or not? Dan, the science in this film does not check out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, part of the problem is This is is not hard sci-fi. There is a level at which this is magic stuff, right? Yeah. Like, it it is, if we wanted to open the can of worms that is, how does all this work? We would be here for a long time. I mean, this, in some ways, again, and it's... uh, unfair because i keep comparing it to alien which i think you and i agree is a is a truly great film yeah. but like this is one of those things where i kept wondering how the hell do they get their clothes on back on like, how do they have their memories sort of like, like yeah, yeah. when at what point do they switch into like devious mode right it, exactly it, it is not it is not something that carpenter has thought through like and that's right. one thing i would say about carpenter as much as i think we both generally like his stuff he yeah. has like a big idea and he goes for it and he right. has a lot and of passion it, it, for it, but he's not like yeah. thinking every little detail out, you know? Right, right. This is a good film for my for my money. It's not a good, good film. Like not every, again, like comparing it to Alien, they've clearly worked out almost everything. Whereas in this, there are some truly amazing moments in this film. Again, I don't want to like say I didn't like it, but 
there were parts that don't quite hang together. I think the acting is really good. I think the script is actually pretty good. I I think that the big, it's the plot holes that are a problem and you just have to not think about them. They don't even do a hand wave. Like they just like dive on through, which I think is a carpenter specialty. Like not even (laughs) going to try and explain. We are just going to go for it. It it (laughs) is an interesting question as to whether or not the thing is self-aware or if it's just trying to survive, which See, there's so many questions that if there was even a glance at them, it would make the movie more interesting. Uh, at a I agree. Level. That's the th- that's what's frustrating. I actually think if there had been a little more thought applied to it, it would have made it a, be- a better film. Like, if, among other things, if you had actually had some understanding for why the thing is doing what it's doing. But like, like there, there's enough for me to think that, for example, like Norris at various times and because I was rewatching bits of it, and you see Norris like before he like collapses he seems to be in pain at various times and clearly he must have been a thing at that moment. And so like there was part of me that that concluded, no, he actually didn't know what he was. And that like, you know, but there's a point at which suddenly like maybe it's, as you say, it's self-preservation when they start kicking into something else. And if they destroy the clothes, how do they get new clothes? How come people don't recognize that they're wearing new clothes? Right, exactly. The the mechanics and so-called science of it like totally break down. However, Dan, you know what? There's another kind of science. Yes. It's political science. Oh, oh, that's true, Anna. That's very true. Which brings me to a question, Dan. Yes, Anna. Is there IR in this movie? You know, most of you don't know what's going on around here, but I'm damn sure some of you do. And those who do know that there's <laughs> only a small but important amount of IR in this film. Really, in some ways, the lack of IR in this film is on purpose. One of the points of the thing is to show that this community is totally in isolation. And one of the few plot points they sort of check off at the very beginning is that Windows can't raise any of the other bases in Antarctica. You know, after the Norwegians come, they're killed. We don't really see anyone else. The Norwegians don't even talk to the Americans. So it's really, to the extent that the world exists in the thing, it is just the world of this base. So there's no really other actors that are out there in in some ways in the system. That said, the powerful bit of IR in this film, and it's really the section that is the most amazing part of this film, is the, the breakdown of trust within the base. Once everyone realizes that someone else could be a thing, and because that other thing could also absorb them, this film essentially becomes the essence of realism. The essence of realism in international relations is you have to survive. The only way you can survive is to engage in self-help because you cannot trust that other actors, even actors that have been long-standing friends or partners, will always be long-standing friends or partners. Maybe their preferences will switch, or maybe they will become absorbed by an alien and thereby end your existence. And so that section of the film where it's literally this sort of Hobbesian war of all against all, yeah, that was that was definitely a, a small amount of IR. But it's an important piece of IR. Dan, can you tell us more about Antarctica? No, I'm just kidding. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't tell us about Antarctica's like special role in international relations. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to hear it a little bit later on it. But yes, oh, okay. <laughs> but you know what? That's not really important right now, Anna. What's important is that I have a question for you. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? Capitalism is stealthy, Dan. But I'm a real light sleeper, Dan. (laughs) Real light sleeper. So I had a whole argument laid out about how the thing was capitalism, which, you know, like it kind of works, right? Yeah. 
It sure. absorbs everything. Yeah, sure. It absorbs everything. Okay. MacReady has a speech. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It, it wants to hide inside an imitation, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it mm. takes us over, it has no more enemies. So that works for me for capitalism, you know? <laughs> yeah. But then I watched that documentary. <laughs> which is available on YouTube. Which is available right on YouTube. And yeah. John Carpenter, who smokes throughout the entire thing, which is somewhat endearing, if deadly, has this section where they take care of this right away. Mm-hmm. He says, well, you know, women did work or do work in Antarctica. Yeah. But it's more fun to make an all-male movie. <laughs> I'm quoting here. Yeah. It's a more streamlined approach. You wouldn't have to deal with the whole, the whole thing. And then he kind of trails <laughs> off. <laughs> So to make a film about the thing, that way you don't have to deal with the whole thing. Okay. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. Dan, I wanted him to finish that sentence. I really did. Because uh, it's true. He makes a film about the thing, which is just which is about not dealing with the thing. And so here, <laughs> my new theory is the thing is femininity, fecundity, you know, regeneration. This works better. <laughs> Especially... <laughs> Seems it since it seems to be what he was intentionally making the film about. So, you know, women are not in it. There, there's sort of two females in the movie. There's a few on the game show that they watch right. on video for and then like a brief second. Yeah. Right, and then there's the chess wizard. Yes, <laughs> who, who beats McCready at chess? I would add, and who McCready calls a cheating bitch, which yes. is like. You know, uh, unnecessary, kind of out of nowhere. Not only that, like, again, this was like another moment in the very early on in the film, like Gary breaking the window, like McCready responds by pouring some scotch into the computer and like having it go on fire. Again, not something that would actually happen, like even in the most like weird version. Of, and kind of, of not subtle if this is a movie yeah. about being, you know, fearful of femininity. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Because like, what did she do to him? Really? <laughs> You know, but what they're really threatened by, of course, is the fecundity of the thing Ah. and its ability to procreate without male involvement. (laughs) Right. Fair enough. And in this way, it it also echoes the alien movies that we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. And I will point out that Charles McReady, the end of the movie, are going to die because they have refused Mm -hmm. to procreate. (laughs) They will only live if they do procreate. Right. Well, a question of whether they would live or not, I suppose, is another issue. Yeah, but what yes. is life? But also, yeah, but also, it's not a coincidence. I think that Charles and McCready are the two last characters standing. Are the two most, for lack of a way of putting it, traditionally macho characters right. in the plot. And of course, there's just a ton of toxic masculinity as they just like shoot each other and burn each other up. And like, for instance, right. like Clark is killed for no, well, not for no reason, but. He's not an alien. Like he's not. The no, thing. but to be fair, Clark is going out. Like I don't. Let me put this way. I don't want to. I don't want to defend McCready too much on that because he's like clearly paranoid or whatever. But that said, if someone is going after you with a scalpel and you know that there could be alien things there, I don't entirely blame him for shooting Clark. Okay. All right. Well. Uh, yeah. Yes. True. I will still say that that the level of violence that's committed still seems to me to be an illustration of toxic masculinity, justified oh, yeah. by a fear of femininity. Yes. But I I was thinking, however, about like the original movie and about, you know, in 1950s, it's almost a cliche, but I think it's true that those movies are about communism or about fear communism. And it it did occur to me that a lot of movies that are horror movies in some ways are about fear itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie is, is 
it is funny that John, that John Carpenter, you know, said the quiet part loud as far as like not having women in it. Yeah. But I think what he was like seriously, I'm being earnest in, in saying what I, I think he is interested in over multiple movies, but especially in this one, is the idea of fear and the idea of paranoia. I, I tend to agree. And again, what what I think really works in this film is in particular the paranoia part of it. That's the part of the film that I think is it will hold up, will continue to hold up, and like is almost alien level in terms of how good it is. I will note that when people have tried to figure out why this movie didn't do well, it mm-hmm. in, instead had a life on video, E.T. came out like, <laughs> two weeks before it, I think. And this sort of, you know, uh, sort of pop psychology uh, supposition is that people did not want to see a scary alien. They much would rather see the, you know, Reese's Pieces loving. I yes, I mean, you know, they're just two very different films. I think it was maybe too gross. I really, I think that. Yeah, I do think it was very gross. It's the the grossness in this film was unparalleled. I think particularly at the time that it came out. And as I said, I remember the one time I think I saw a bit of this as a teenager. I remember, I think honestly being shocked is like, what the hell am I watching? And like, I turned it off. (laughs) It's discordant notes, Dan. Yes, this is where we take questions from the Discord, from our patrons. And by the way, if you become a patron, you get to ask us some of these questions. And sometimes we we talk about them on the podcast. I didn't mention that that is the big benefit of becoming a patron is you get to be a member of our incredible Discord. This is a wonderful community. And they talk about lots of things besides sci-fi. And mm-hmm. I think it is, like I said, the the best thing about being a patron is to join that community. I would add that one of the things I've enjoyed about the Discord has been the way in which they've welcomed on new members. It's been yeah. actually quite lovely. Yeah. You know, it's it's, an, it's a nice welcoming community that way. So we have two questions today. One is from Ramsey80, which was, how would the fact that the thing takes place in Antarctica complicate any national or international response to the alien threat? Damn Ramsey you, Ramsey80. Damn you. you. No, no, don't listen to Anna. I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> I'm not going to go on about this, but I'm going to say two things about this. First of all, it's worth pointing out that because it landed in Antarctica, it complicates things for the thing, too. You know, like, I would think that the thing would have wanted to have landed in any other part of the globe except a part that is remote and does not have a lot of people on the ground. Although, admittedly, it would have been funny if a thing had gotten into a penguin. I like the idea of a penguin thing. That's a whole separate conversation because penguins are disgusting creatures. <laughs> don't don't believe the National Geographic stuff. Penguins shit everywhere. It is something they do like as a matter of course. And like one of the things that those National Geographic documentaries never show is what it smells like to be next to a penguin. Dan, how do you and know trust this? me? Because I went to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that setup. <laughs> because I went to Antarctica. You know, penguins are great. You can get up close to them. They just... But why would you they, want they, to? They, 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 exactly, they literally shit where they eat is the way I would put it. So that's nothing. The more significant point is that Antarctica is actually a rare place of reasonably robust international cooperation. On a, the Antarctica Treaty, and I'm going to, I only have like five pages of material to talk about here. <laughs> no, just, but one of the few examples of successful Cold War cooperation is the Antarctica Treaty, in which the United States and the Soviet Union agreed to various terms 
allowing basically any country to set up a research base in Antarctica. There are territorial claims on Antarctica as well, but pretty much everyone kind of ignores that at this point because, among other things, no one can really live in Antarctica for an extended period of time without significant amounts of aid and, and support from elsewhere in the globe. So it, there's no self-sustaining community within Antarctica. But as a result, there's a fair amount of cooperation among the, the research community there, which was why at the very part of the beginning of the film, the idea that Windows couldn't talk to anyone else in Antarctica was a little weird. And we have a second question that you've solicited from the Discord. It is from Bull City Brian. Mm -hmm. What do we think the objective of the thing actually is? Does it just systematically replace the entire biosphere of a planet by filling all the same niches? So do we just end up with a planet full of things pretending to be sled dogs and crabs and insurance salesmen? Question mm -hmm. mark. It is kind of like the thing that is brought up at the end of WandaVision, the paradox Ooh. of Theseus's boat. If you replace something with exactly the same things, mm -hmm. isn't it the same thing? It's interesting, except, you know, like if we believe that the thing sort of starts to transform if it's threatened, then like what happens when like, I don't know, there's a car accident or something. It's it, But again, it's one of the things that's left unexplained. In yeah. And film. what would and, a planet of these things be? Right. Yeah. I have. And, and clearly, by the way, if they came in a spaceship, this implies that like the thing in its natural element can actually pilot a spacecraft. Unless, you know what, Dan? It's a bioweapon. Maybe that's it. That's that's possible. Either that or... I confess, maybe it's a multi-level marketing scheme. I did have this imagine, like this idea that, like, if you have enough of the things out there, they'd start trying to sell stuff to everyone else. Like, you know, like this is how crypto would actually take over. <laughs> I, I was going to compare it <laughs> to really ugly leggings. Yes. Also, that would be that would be scary too. The thing comes wearing really <laughs> ugly leggings. Uh, Dan, we need to talk about the theme. So now we need to address the question that everyone has for cold sci-fi winner. Where is this on the energy scale? Is it on a scale of 1 to 100 with this being Celsius, so it's freezing to explosive? Yeah. Was this movie a cold fish or was it an Arctic dynamite? <laughs> I'm going to give this an 85, I think, after having talked to you about it. Again, it's interesting because I think a lot of comparisons were made to Blade Runner. Blade Runner came out in the same year. And I think the comparisons are apt because both of these films were panned upon release. But I think there's been something of an overcorrection, actually, for both of them, to tell you the truth. I know that's really controversial. I don't think Blade Runner is quite as good as everyone thinks it is. There are really, really, really good parts of this film. Those parts are great. But I think it's messier than than some folks want to acknowledge. And like even when I was watching, rewatching little bits of it, it doesn't quite add up to me. But still, 85 is really good. Like I think it's like I'm really glad we watched it. Among that's a solid what, B, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. What I guess you, I, I would give it like an A minus. So like a okay. 90. That's an A minus. That's that an, a minus. an A minus. I still yeah. love it. And I think yeah. it is very influential. Yeah. And that's why it's sort of an important film. Not yeah. that it's actually so great. Alien is amazing. Alien is just right. great. It's just a great movie. Blade Runner also, I would say, is more influential than it is fantastic. Yeah, right. And it's, I think in some ways the two films, you know, are, are similar in that sense. And again, in some ways, the very fact that I'm trying to compare it to Alien is actually a compliment to, to the thing because I'm not comparing a lot of films to Alien. So, like, you know, that, again, it's it's a really good film in that sense. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's helicopter oh, 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 flying oh, oh. away. 
It's, yeah. it, it is the debris field, which Wilford Brimley will later use to make a very tiny spaceship. <laughs> that was the other, all right, so like, I wasn't the only one who noticed that. I was looking at that spaceship and thinking, what, what are the dimensions of that thing? And how does Wilford Brimley get into it? I mean, admittedly, I guess he could more. Well, apparently it, he just like, needs so. to make a little bit of him, him fit into it, which is another plot hole, which is if it's contagious yeah. at the level of like a drop of blood, then in, the thing mm-hmm. could really take over the whole station pretty easily and quickly question yep. mark so yeah yeah uh so anyway we are in the debris field this is where we talk about the things we didn't get a chance to talk about dan do you have anything i do i have a few things the first was is that you know this being called sci-fi winter i do have to point out there were a little variable about the cold <laughs> like there's there's no other way to put this like you know there are times they talk about it being <laughs> and like i would know four. this because i have been to Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> well no it's more that like, I know there's a difference between it being like in terms of Fahrenheit or even Celsius. There's a difference between it being zero degrees Celsius, minus 10 degrees Celsius, and then minus 40. And part of the problem is, is that there are times in this film where like they're outdoors and like they've got no, you know, they've got like an open jacket or something. And I'm like, if it's the start of winter down there, even if it's during daytime, like you should be bundled up a little more. I don't, I don't know. It was, it was a little weird for me, I guess. It really made me think about like when I was... T- <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this for you. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, you you've all you only rub my face in the fact that you were in French Polynesia. You don't actually talk about being <laughs> Arabic that much. I do. Uh, now, Anna, I do rub in the face that I was also in Rome. I forgot about that. That's one. right. Yes, yes, That's right. Yes. That's right. Fair enough. <laughs> well, I forgot to mention something kind of important uh, or at least interesting, which is that IP is a frozen shapeshifter, Dan. <laughs> there is a 1982 novelization of this film. There have been haunted house attractions, board games, and sequels, and comic books, and a video game. And in 2011, there was a prequel of the same name. Hmm. And I will point out that the special effects have been almost imitated. There's, yeah. I think, um, Botten did incredibly original stuff, and mm-hmm. it's been borrowed from most, I think, egregiously from Stranger Things. The flesh flower yeah. in this movie is a demogorgon. Like mm-hmm. it, when you, when I saw it and I was like, "Oh my god, that is a demogorgon! That that is it." Yep. And but the Carpenter was there first. And so, flesh yeah, yeah. flower also will haunt my dreams. <laughs> I think you were going to mention this. First of all, I love the song "Superstition" by Stevie Wonder. It is a great choice in the film because it's playing as the dog is wandering around. And like it's the sort of the beginning setup, and it's it's just the perfect choice. And ne- at one point, someone complains, "Hey, turn that music down." Never turn down Stevie Wonder's "Superstition." If anything, that and Nalls turns down. it up. Yeah, good for yeah. Nalls is all I can say. And yeah. I was going to point out that they actually could not use that in the movie when it was first released, but they ah. got permission when it on video. That is, by the way, some sticking to details at, that I don't usually associate with John Carpenter. <laughs> good for him i want to just talk about jed again no not not very much okay but he has a menacing quality to him that really Mm -hmm. does like make the movie that first act and it is just Mm -hmm. it just leaps off the screen sorry to bring it back again but if the acting was this good with one of the humans i think we would talk about it again so jed mvp no and I would, I would even go further. It's not just that he's menacing. He's also cute at times. Like, you know, yes. in the very beginning, like, he's, like, you know, fleeing for his life and, like, you know, goes to, I think, Richard Masur's character. 
And, you know, like you can believe that he's in fear for his life, which is he is. But, you know, not. For and he jumps up on Masur. It's almost like he intuited which of them would right. be the most open to his advances. Exactly. The last thing I, I've got is that McCready really can't tell Nordic countries apart. Keep, like, there's, there's this running joke <laughs> about that was how a it's joke. Like, yeah. I know it is kind of a running joke, but like he's like, oh, I can't believe these Swedes. And Copper keeps having to say they're Norwegians, McCready. And I don't know why, but maybe that's the reason this film was banned in Finland temporarily, which was my favorite fun piece of trivia fact that I, I got watching this. Film. And, and too good to look up, I, I might add. I did not <laughs> check that one. I'm sure that's not actually true. But like I like to think that was Nordic solidarity. I just have a couple of things I want to end on. They're uh, extremes in terms of terms of tone. Maybe mm-hmm. they'll balance each other out. The first is, in those two weeks that they were up there as a group, Carpenter and Kurt Russell came up with a backstory for McGreedy that I think shines through, which is that he was a Vietnam War veteran pilot who had uh, you know, saw some shit. He does were. exude that vibe. That would be a safe way of putting it, yeah. He saw some shit, but also apparently has a taste for the silly, which I appreciate, and mm-hmm. I really loved his hat. Yes, I loved his hat too, Anna. I, I actually had that in my notes also. The first time I saw that sombrero when he goes up the helicopter, I'm like, okay, that's a nice touch. I like that. That that's that's good. It's a good that was, hat. That was a, yeah, yeah. I, and exactly. a good hat is a good good note to leave on. I, think. I agree. So we're going to continue cold sci-fi winter. Yes, we'll be doing next Tom Sweater Ditches. I've, sweater I'm going to mangle that name. Sweater Ditches. We're going to mangle the name. I just remember it starts with sweater. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're doing The Gone World, and then after that, I believe we're going to be doing Alien v. Predator. And then after that, I think it'll be timed perfectly. We'll be doing... Did I say we were going to be doing Groundhog Day, Anna? We're going to be doing Groundhog Day. We're going to be doing Groundhog Day. We are. And until then... Keep this channel open for more. Mm-hmm.